We must constantly look at things in a different way. The Healthcare Education Transformation Podcast was created by two physical therapists out of the desire to learn more about the different educational roles in physical therapy and healthcare and how healthcare education works by talking with educational leaders and people with different perspectives within physical therapy and across interdisciplinary lines on how education can be improved to disrupt the status quo of healthcare education. This is our journey and thanks for listening. Are you a third-year physical therapy student that excels on tests when you have study guides, checklists, and deadlines? With all of the information available about how to prepare for the NPTE, it's easy to get disorganized and not feel prepared going into the big day. NPTE Prep Success is an online course that provides PT students easy-to-use study guides and step-by-step guidance through the NPTE preparation. To learn more, visit kylericeprep.com. Thank you again all for your continued support, and now for the show. Hi, everyone, and welcome to another episode of the Healthcare Education Transformation Podcast. We're your hosts, Stephanie Wyrock and F. Scott Feel, and for this episode, we are joined by Dr. Greg Hartley. Dr. Greg Hartley is an assistant professor of clinical physical therapy in the Department of Physical Therapy at the Miller School of Medicine at the University of Miami. Dr. Hartley is the president of the Academy of Geriatric Physical Therapy and is a board-certified geriatric specialist. He is also a past member of the American Board of Physical Therapy Residency and Fellowship Education, or as we will refer to it in this podcast, ABPTRFE. Thank you, Dr. Hartley, for joining us today. I'm curious to hear more about your background. Um, Obviously, you have a a lot of credentials. Tell us a little bit about how your career led us, led you to geriatric physical therapy, residency and fellowship education, and where you are today. Sure. Um, well, my career really didn't lead me to geriatrics. I sort of started off there. And uh, I, I'm one of those, I think, rare PT students, or I was one of those rare PT students who sort of knew that geriatrics was the area that they were most interested in. Um, I have to admit that when I was a PT student, I didn't know much about board certification or specialty area practice. Uh, I just knew that I work, I liked working with aging adults. And I, I have a story that's probably similar to, to many PT students who go into geriatrics now, and that's that you know I had a family member, a grandmother in my case, and that, that really triggered my interest. Um, I ended up working uh, for a while in acute care and then in outpatient and then in a pain clinic Um, and uh, all that was at one employer but just kind of moving around different settings but pretty much all of it was uh, exclusive to an aging adult population Uh, and then I I decided that I wanted to branch out so I ended up going into uh, home health and uh, did home health for about six years Uh, which tended to be, again, mostly with aging adults. Uh, And then after that, um, moved back to Miami. All of that work was done in Alabama. Um, And then I moved back to Miami where I had gone to PT school and worked in a post-acute care setting that was nearly exclusively in uh, aging adults. And so I did inpatient rehab, skilled nursing, uh, and outpatient in that setting, and and long-term care as well. Um, there is where 
I really became aware of what was happening with post-professional education and physical therapy and got interested in establishing a geriatric residency. By that time, I had uh, fairly recently become board certified in geriatrics, uh, maybe about two years after I moved back to Miami. I'm sorry, two years before I moved back to Miami, I, um, I had become board certified in geriatrics. And uh, so residency education was just beginning to kick off. And I um, had a very, very supportive employer, one who uh, my, my boss, or really my boss's boss, was a former member of the APTA board of directors who had been involved in the decision that APTA made relative to post-professional education. And so he was a very supportive of my interest in establishing a residency program. And uh, because of that support, as well as my interest, uh, we started what became the first accredited geriatric residency program down here in Miami. And, uh, and that got me into the world of uh, accreditation. And um, because at the time, most of residencies were in orthopedics or sports, um, geriatrics and neurology uh, kind of followed that, and they were looking for diversity on the board. At the time, it was actually a credentialing committee, but <clears throat> that later changed to ABCDEFG. <laughs> uh, so, um, so I became involved on that board because they were looking for some diversity among specialty areas, and so uh, a a great of mine, Rob Landell out of uh, University of Southern California, uh, got me involved in that, and I remained involved and still do to this day. Served a couple of terms on the board, one term as uh, when it was a credentialing committee, and then came back for a second term when it um, became a board. Chaired it for a couple of years uh, and was on the board for several. Since I've come off the board, I've remained involved mainly in doing uh, accreditation site visits. So that's my role, still continues to be my role today. Awesome, Greg. Um, could you tell our listeners uh, a little bit about what a geriatric else? <laughs> sure. Um, not, not dissimilar to any other uh, residency training area. Um, so the commonality really is that a residency is designed to advance a clinician's knowledge and skills, um, beyond entry level in a defined area of specialty practice. So uh, those exist in nine different areas now for physical therapy. The newest one being added is oncology. Uh, and so geriatrics uh, is one of those defined areas. So just as you would have specialty training to learn how to manage a child uh, in pediatrics, we have specialty training to learn how to best manage uh, aging adults, in this case, geriatrics. And so a geriatric residency focuses on uh, really advanced clinical skills and advanced knowledge relative to managing aging adults. And so what is that really? Um, it's, it's the advanced skills that are required for um, all the different body systems, you know, be they musculoskeletal, neuromuscular, cardiopulmonary, but perhaps what makes geriatrics different from orthopedics or neuro or cardiopulmonary and vascular, uh, cardiovascular and pulmonary rather, is the unique way that we manage aging adults and the complex 
um, context that I think contributes to their overall plan of care. Sometimes that can be uh, aging adults who are trying to manage four or five chronic disease processes in addition to the thing that brought them to your clinic in the first place. Uh, often those things can be cognitive, they can be, um, well, they can be anything. It could be arthritis, it could be diabetes, it could be obesity, it could be heart disease, it could be a number of different things. But generally speaking, in the aging adult population, we're not just treating the reason for referral, so to speak, or, or the reason that the patient came into the clinic. We're usually treating that plus four or five other things. Uh, and so there's a complex decision-making process that goes into how to manage those patients uh, in the whole spectrum of what's going on with them physiologically. Now, that also gets compounded by what's going on with them psychologically. Uh, and in the cases of aging adults, that could include cognitive decline. Not always. That's certainly not normal. Um, but it is not uncommon either. Uh, and so that's one area of geriatrics that I think is sort of where it is unique. Another part of residency training doesn't include, or well, it does always include managing those adults with chronic conditions, but it also speaks to the entire continuum of care. And in managing an aging adult, uh, we manage patients all the way from health promotion and wellness and um, developing physical activity plans for people that may not have an acute condition, but are learning how to best manage some of those chronic non-communicable conditions that I was mentioning before. But beyond that, we work in the outpatient setting, typical uh, perhaps musculoskeletal or neuromuscular conditions, coupled with some of the other things that I mentioned. And then we move into acute care settings and perhaps most common subacute care settings like skilled nursing uh, or uh, subacute rehab, which is kind of the common vernacular these days for that setting and then inpatient rehab. Um, then geriatric care obviously continues into long-term care for those individuals that end up in that kind of setting, which I'll remind the listeners is not very many. It's about 3.5% of the uh, population of aging adults that actually ends up in long-term care. So there's kind of a myth uh, about uh, who ends up in a nursing home. Um, but we do manage those patients, obviously. And then geriatric care uh, obviously continues all the way right up to the end of life with palliative care and hospice care. So part of a geriatric residency includes exposure to all of those settings. Uh, so there will be exposure in acute care, exposure in outpatient, exposure in home health, and exposure in skilled nursing facilities. Those settings are required uh, in, a, in any geriatric residency. And then as far as patient population, really there's no diagnostic criteria. There, there are some common diagnoses that are essential, of course, but uh, the main criteria for the clinical management of these patients is their age. So that is currently defined as over the age of 60 uh, for aging adults. The, uh, the Academy of Geriatric Physical Therapy recently published a document called Essential Competencies in the Care of the Older Adult uh, at the Completion of a Physical Therapist Post-Professional Program of Study. And that's kind of a cool document only because, to my knowledge, it may be the first one that's been created specifically for post-professional uh, students. So 
a number of academies or sections have documents related to the competencies that are required of entry-level students, including geriatrics, that we have that document as well. Um, but this document was created specific to uh, those competencies that are essential for the post-professional uh, student or resident, I should say. Yeah, that's a really great outlook and a, and a great insight into a geriatric residency. It seems super involved um, and a lot of different levels that I really wouldn't even think about aside from just settings, um, you know, but like you said, the complex management of the thought process that has to go into managing these older adults and all the things they've got going on. Um, we've had a pretty big debate over the many episodes of, of the Healthcare Education Transformation podcast lately about residency and fellowship and there's some people that are for it there's some people that are against it but we'd love to hear your take Greg on how you think a residency or fellowship can be beneficial to physical therapists and even the profession as a whole sure um, I have uh, for a long time as you heard in, in kind of my intro been involved in residency and fellowship education primarily residency education in terms of my personal involvement so I've been a fan since really its inception in our profession. I believe that as our profession matures and has already matured to a doctoring level, that we, we owe society the best possible care that we can provide. And uh, at the rate at which information is now available to everybody, um, and as the practice of physical therapy has evolved, to a doctoring profession where differential diagnosis and management of patients in a primary care or entry point into the healthcare system has become common, I think that we owe our patients and society um, the best possible care that we can provide. And because of that volume of information, I think it's nearly impossible for anybody to keep up with everything about every patient all the time. So, I would argue that most physical therapists specialize in one way or another, whether or not it's by choice. And, and I believe that that special specialization, again, whether or not it's by choice, occurs by virtue of where they choose to work. Uh, so if you work in a children's hospital, then certainly you're working in pediatrics. Uh, if you work in acute care, then certainly you're working in acute care. If you work in an outpatient ortho clinic, then you're working in ortho. Uh, and often we self-select that based on our own interests. And so I think to a large extent, we already specialize because even within large outpatient clinics, if a patient comes in with uh, pelvic pain, not every PT in that clinic is likely going to feel confident in treating that patient. And so they may refer, hopefully refer that patient to a PT who knows about pelvic pain, or I could say the same thing about vestibular disorders or a variety of other things. And so even within our own clinics, we specialize and subspecialize. So I think that we already do specialize to some extent. So, Residency education is then kind of a formal pathway to get therapists beyond that entry level um, of practice to a, a much more 
high level of practice in a formal didactic and clinically mentored program so that it isn't haphazard. It isn't uh, sort of luck of the draw, depending on where you might be employed or where you might open a practice. Um, It is highly dependent on the quality of the faculty in the residency program. And, uh, and so that's the standardization that I think our profession should evolve toward is elevating the level of care through um, a highly standardized um, process by which we can educate our young early professionals in how to best provide more complex and efficient care to, uh, to these patients in the specialty area where they are um, interested. So it sounds like from what you're saying Doug, is that, you know, residency is a really great way to formalize the specialty training that eventually we transition ourselves to, you know, and I've had this debate with multiple colleagues and friends about, you know, should, is residency something that we should require our students to do or new professionals or should it not? I've talked to many proponents for it, many people who are opposed to it. What's your stance on requiring residency, especially with the continued proliferation of new physical therapy programs and the increase in physical therapists that are being produced by our schools? That is a fantastic question and one that is very hard, I think, for us as a profession to to grapple with. Um, I think the difficulty in answering the question has to do with the history of our profession um, and one example of how the profession has um, sort of put the cart before the horse uh, in some cases is board certification, in my opinion. Uh, we created a pathway to board certification before we created a way to train the people to become board certified. And residency education, I think, fills that gap. Uh, so, so that's part of my brain that just wants things to be in order um, that my inner self just tells me that that's the right way that it should be that before you attain board certification, you have gone through um, an accredited training program that then makes you eligible to sit for that board exam. So that answers part of the question because that really only answers the part about the people who are attaining board certification right now which is voluntary. The question really was about, should this be a mandatory process for our students? And again, I would say there's a tremendous amount of research out there about what happens in the early years of um, professional formation and, um, and what happens to novice clinicians as they begin to work in this well-documented community of practice that shapes them Uh, throughout their uh, early years and and then ultimately their later years. I've already spoken about how I think people self-select specialty uh, education anyway, or specialty practice anyway, uh, just by virtue of where they work. And I know that many uh, employers have mentoring programs, many hospitals have mentoring programs for new clinicians What we're hearing from the employers, though, in 2018 and earlier uh, is that in today's healthcare environment, they're not positioned to be able to pay for that kind of education. 
In other words, when they hire a clinician out of school, they expect a clinician that's able to practice at the top of their license right out of the gate. And so the question begs is, is it incumbent on the employer to provide that training to these new graduates? Or is it incumbent on the profession to provide that training to the new graduates? And I would argue that it's incumbent on the profession to do that, that um, we, again, I think should be producing clinicians that are ready to practice at the top of their license right out of the gate. And I'm not sure that, um, that we're able to do that because so many individuals seek uh, those kinds of mentoring employment arrangements right out of school. And, uh, and I think that residency education would be a better model for that. Now, that said, there's a lot wrapped up in the rest of your question that had, had to do with proliferation of programs, as well as what one thing that cannot be ignored, which is the burden of student debt. And so requiring additional training at an additional cost to the student is frankly not an option in our profession. And that's partly because of the already abysmal return on investment related to physical therapy education and the earning potential of a new graduate. So we have to back up for a minute, I think, and think about the clinical phase of education for our DPTT students. Is there a way that we can model clinical education so that it meets the requirements of entry-level education we produce a graduate who isn't completely over their head in debt at that time, who is then able to enter into a clinic and get supervised clinical training in a wide variety of specialty areas, who then moves on into a specialty training program to really be able to um, provide high-quality independent kind of efficient specialty-based care. I think we can do that. It requires restructuring not only of post-professional education, but also entry-level education. I also think that we have to consider uh, the possibility of stage licensure. I also think that we have to consider um, requiring these kinds of internships or residencies and the words kind of get thrown around a little bit because I think with residency education, we really are focusing on specialty practice. Whereas what we have called internships, we're uh, referring to general practice. And so can some of that internship time be done post-graduation? I know those models already exist and I think are uh, working successfully in, in many cases. So to answer your question, yes, I'm a fan of uh, residency education. Yes, I'm a fan of uh, eventually a mandatory residency education. There is a whole lot of foundational work that would have to occur before then, including not the least of which is establishing a specialty area in general practice. Uh, we do not have the equivalent of primary care or internal medicine in physical therapy, and we absolutely have to create uh, an area of specialty that would be uh, whatever we, we would term it. And you know, I'll just, for the sake of argument right now, call it general practice. Um, but that would have to be created. I think that you made a lot of 
um, interesting points in that answer. And I know my question was a little complex and had lots of parts to it. But the one of the things that you had mentioned was um, that student debt is one of the barriers to being able to require residency. And then the other thing that you had mentioned was some of the systemic foundational problems that pre are preventing us from implementing something like, say, mandatory residency. Uh, we've had this conversation with a couple other, uh, other guests on this podcast, but do you think that if, do you think that there's uh, an issue with the clinical reasoning that comes out of uh, schools, different schools that is making students unprepared for clinical practice? Um, or do you think that that is just because of all the plethora, plethora of knowledge that we have access to, that that's more of the barrier? So I, I will do my best to answer that question. Um, I, I think the problem is not that the graduate is incapable. I think that they're capable. I think the problem is the wide variability in that capability. So there's a huge spectrum of how students are prepared. And residency program directors see this all the time, as do employers who employ um, students from you know, a variety of different programs. Uh, and so you get students from East, East Coast, West Coast, North, South, wherever, uh, University A, University B, and you expect that as an employer or even as a residency program director, uh, you expect that you are getting a fairly equivalent product and, um, and in terms of the employee or the clinician that you have admitted or hired. And the fact is that you, you don't. There, there's wide variability. So I don't want to imply that anybody is incapable or that their decision-making is not um, competent. That's not at all what I'm saying. I just think that there is a huge variability in the level of students when they come out. And so often there is uh, work that has to be done to get students ready to begin residency education. Uh, and, you know, physical therapy is not the only profession that has struggled with this. Medicine, who's been doing residency education for 100 years plus, um, has struggled with the same thing. So as their medical residents were graduating from medical school and entering residency, they were seeing the exact same phenomenon in medicine. Uh, their residents were coming from different medical schools across the country and entering residencies at a wide variety of levels of knowledge, skill, decision-making, uh, whatever we want to talk about. They were sort of very variable in that. And so in medicine, in medicine they uh, developed something called uh, the EPAs or the essential professional attributes uh, of, and those are essentially behaviors, attributes, skills, competencies, if you want to call them that, uh, that would be required of medical students before they were deemed appropriate to enter a residency. And so they're essentially the minimum skills required to enter. And that's been done fairly recently in medicine um, so that they now have a standardized process for assessing competence and readiness to enter a residency program in medicine. And I think we're already having those conversations in physical therapy. I know Gail Jensen and uh, Steve Chesbrough and some others have been uh, having conversations about that. There was a recent 
um, editorial in PTJ on that topic. Uh, and, uh, and I know that there um, is a lot of conversation around, are we ready for that kind of competence assessment uh, in terms of these EPAs uh, in our profession? That's interesting that you make those points. Some of the other, uh, the other thing that you had mentioned previously, Greg, was about uh, another solution for some of for this uh, mandatory residency um, issue has been stepped licensure. So in medicine, medical students are required to take uh, different exams to try to get them ready for licensure, and one of them is called a clinical skills examination, and this they have to take. Uh, before their fourth year of medical school to become a fully licensed physician what, and before entering residency. Mm -hmm. And I have had many conversations with uh, physical therapists and, phys and people in physical therapy education uh, regarding this topic, and this is something that I know has been talked about. What are your thoughts on starting a clinical skills examination and the step process for licensure? So I'll proceed that answer with a caveat and that, or, or really a disclaimer. Um, and, and that is uh, the best practice for clinical education task force came out with some recommendations. Uh, and those recommendations included stepped licensure. And uh, again, in full disclosure, I was a member of that task force. And so um, obviously I support the recommendations. So, I, I think that, again, as our profession evolves into a doctoring profession, as we begin to manage patients on the front end of care for primary care, for health promotion prevention, as our paradigm of healthcare in this country ultimately will change from a curative model to more of a preventive model. Uh, and I believe physical therapists play a huge role in that. So those things all together to me um, indicate that I think we really have to be uh, highly skilled and ready to go immediately after we enter our profession at the fully licensed spot, wherever that is. So I'm, I wouldn't be opposed to having some sort of competency exam that would then lend itself to readiness to enter a residency. Uh, so it might be a competency skills exam, it might be something like the EPAs, uh, some sort of readiness for uh, post-professional practice, which would then entail specialty training in an accredited program uh, where you would have this guided mentorship, where this community of practice would be supported in a very structured way where clinical reasoning and clinical decision-making is the ultimate outcome of uh, the resident anyway, and where better patient care and efficient patient care is the outcome for the patient with less variability in what we're doing as physical therapists. And then at the completion of that, uh, there would be uh, the ability to practice fully uh, unrestricted. Now, Again, I know that that's pretty controversial, and I think that there would be a lot of steps that would have to occur before that, and I think that it is likely years and years, if not decades and decades, away. Uh, so I'm not proposing that this be something that we do today or tomorrow or even next year or five years from now. I just think that it is a vision for where we might want our profession to go 
uh, in terms of how we see ourselves 20, 30, 40 years from now. Uh, how do we envision physical therapists practicing in the healthcare environment that will be uh, what we do in 2030, 2040, 2050? Uh, and so I'm, I'm trying to think very progressively in that regard and where I would like to see this profession be long after I'm practicing in it anymore. I think that you make a good point that there's a lot of steps that would have to be taken to implement that. Um, do you think that there would be a certain threshold of supporting evidence that, let's say, a competency examination would have to translate into real-world outcomes um, if this licensure requirement is uh, instituted? Well, I think whatever tool was used to assess readiness uh, or competence at that point certainly would have to go through a variety of, of tests in terms of testing its rigor, testing its validity, uh, and making sure that, that there was evidence to support whatever rubric uh, it was that we chose. Uh, so to the, the actual test or the rubric of how we would assess that, the answer would be yes. In terms of patient effectiveness, uh, I think that this ties in a little bit to the registry and the outcomes registry and how that, how the care of the clinician uh, compares to the care of other clinicians. And so I think that we'll have a lot of data coming from the outcomes registry as we move forward there to be able to talk about efficiency as well as effectiveness of care. So there's, there's kind of two levels to that answer. One is the rubric itself and one is the outcome of the rubric uh, or the outcome of the process rather. Yeah, and I think that even in medicine, there's a lot of limitations to the clin clinical skills exam. And there's been uh, um, many publications about this in say the New England Journal of Medicine and in JAMA. And one of the um, deficits of the current clinical skills exam in medicine is that there's not a lot of real-world outcomes. A lot of these physicians are required to take this exam, but there's no difference in is, a pa is patient safety held to high standard. Right. And that's something that's unknown and something that the, this accrediting body does not even share with the public. Mm -hmm. um, an extra burden on medical students. There's only five sites that offer this test. And so if we're still talking about going back to your point about how if we're going to institute this, something has to be done with student debt. And with the uh, abysmal, as you, would, as you would say, return on investment with PT school, I think that if this was something implemented, at this point, we are not incentivized to implement something like this, especially, you know, if we were to require residency, we might as well become physicians, right? Because we would have to go through the rigorous training that physicians have to go through. And I mean, I'm interested to kind of hear your perspective on that. And I really love that we're talking about this being 30, 40 years down the road. And I'm a very worldly person. I really love to think very far in the future. And so I'm interested as to the steps that we may have to take to get to that and to make it something that would make people still want to become physical therapists. Absolutely, absolutely. I, I don't disagree with a single thing you said. If we were to do some sort of readiness for residency right now, it would be basically be like an EPA. Um, I don't know that we would be ready for some sort of clinical skills exam for that. Um, but I think having an EPA uh, for readiness for residency would work. Um, but you're right, the physician or the medical model 
is not one that we have to aspire to. Um, I think that we, we don't need to try to be physicians. I think we need to try to be physical therapists, but we also need to try to be the best physical therapists we can for our patients and for society. And we also have to think about how healthcare is going to look 10, 20, 30 years down the road. Uh, and I think that we have to be ready for that or somebody else will step in. And so uh, as a doctoring profession, I think we have an obligation to be prepared and be ready for that. And that's what, um, what, makes me excited about residency education and post-professional training because I think that's the logical next step for our profession. Hey, everybody. Thank you for listening to the Healthcare Education Transformation Podcast as we greatly appreciate your support to help us advance healthcare education. We are very happy to announce that we have created a new tool to help develop clinicians into better experts. With that being said, we have created the HET Light Tool, which LIGHT stands for Learning Integrated Towards Expertise. And what we've done is we've taken our first year's worth of episodes with experts in the fields of healthcare and education, and we've taken one golden nugget or theory on expertise and presented it to you in a very easily consumable format so that people can take one lesson or nugget per week and map out and plan how to incorporate it into your clinical and educational practices. And by the end of the year, we think you'll be pleasantly surprised at how far you've progressed towards becoming an expert. To find out more, please check it out at pteducator.com slash H-E-T, which is also available in our show notes. Thank you again all for your continued support. Thank you for attending class today, and we hope that you learned something and gained value from the content. If you'd like to schedule office hours with us, feel free to add us on Twitter at HET Podcast, on Instagram, HET Podcast, on Facebook, the Healthcare Education Transformation Podcast, and the homepage, healthcareeducationtransformationpodcast.com. And for those of you following along in the syllabus, extra credit can be obtained by liking us, sharing us, and leaving a review. Let's continue our journey up Mount Educational Success as lifelong learners.